Good morning, guys. In the 1830s, a French political philosopher by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville was fascinated with the United States of America, which at that time was really just coming into its own. A combination of Enlightenment ideals and Christian values had made this grand experiment that we uh, call the United States of America. And de Tocqueville was fascinated with it. So he came and he made a visit to the U.S. in order to assess both its weaknesses and also its strengths. And he found several things that he thought were just silly in the U.S., but he really had a profound admiration for the nation. He published a series of books, really one book but multiple volumes, called Democracy in America. It's a very thick tome. The book has kind of gone through some revisions and some of what's in the book may be spurious. It may have been added some years later. But there's one statement that the Tocqueville makes about the U.S. that I think will set up what I want to say in the lesson today. This particular rendition of the quote has been used by pundits, uh, politicians, uh, by ministers, uh, everyone from uh, Dwight Eisenhower to Ronald Reagan, even to Bill Clinton, used this particular quote. I want to read it to you now to set up what we're going to do. De Tocqueville is asking the question, what makes America great? And he, he really did conclude it's a great nation. And I'm quoting from him. He said, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her um, ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. In her democratic congress and in her matchless constitution, and the greatness was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits thunder with righteousness did I understand the secret of America's genius and greatness. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. What the Tocqueville is arguing is that America, made up of all these churches, is something like a thousand points of light. I need my advancer, if you don't mind grabbing it. A thousand points of light. And from each of the pulpits of all these churches, every single week has been preached virtues and values and righteousness. And that having people come in by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions, and listen to lectures about how to live the right kind of life, about how to avoid mistreating one another and sinning against with one another, about how to be an honest person, a person of integrity, how to live a faithful life, how to practice virtue, hearing that over and over and over again for literally hundreds of years has made America the great nation that it is. Thank you. And so if we were to look at one recent evaluation of America's greatness would come from a British historian by the name of Tom Holland. Some of you have heard me reference this work before. Holland, who I think is not even a Christian, wants to write about what it is that made Western civilization so unique. He wrote the book after he visited Syria, where ISIS had done such devastation, especially in the lives of ordinary people, crucifixions, beheadings, mass mistreatment of women and children. And Holland says, you know, when you think about it, ISIS 
is a lot like the Roman Empire was. There's not much difference between the two. So what is it that made Western civilization leave the Roman way of doing things and become a land of virtue? And his conclusion was the Christian religion. In fact, he says, it is impossible to understand Western civilization apart from the church because the church has been a thousand points of light spread across the U.S. that has taught us our virtue and corrected us in our invirtuous behavior. Our view of human equality, that all humans are equal. You understand that's not a natural position. If you go back and read the Greek and Roman philosophers, nobody believed that. In many places on planet Earth today, nobody still believes it. That is, it's only because we're Christians that we actually begin to think that people have an inherent dignity, regardless of their ethnicity, their race, regardless of their station in life. That's a Christian position. Our concept of economic freedom, that people have the right to transact their businesses, that your property is inviolable, you should be able to keep your own property. These came to us from Christian worldviews. There are other places, places where Christianity hasn't been practiced, but people don't have these values where they don't practice these values. We got these through the Christian faith. The idea of justice, of due process, of the presumption of innocence, so many of the things that we simply hold today as, as, as Americans to be sort of just basic human rights, they were not always regarded as human rights. They came to us through the church. They came to us through the Christian religion. Holland talks about lots of them, women's rights, universal education, our refusal to put children in labor camps, abolitionism, pro-life, our hospital system, art, architecture, our music. So much of the West is built on this. I'll give you just one quick illustration, a personal one. I'm named David. I was at Starbucks the other day and uh, I, they, they took my order and said, your name? And I said, David. And they, the barrister said, well, there's two other Davids here. A, a pretty common name. The name David is from an old Iron Age Semitic shepherd who eventually led a small confederation of tribes. What in the world would make somebody 3,000 years later name their child after that Iron Age shepherd? And the answer is, he's in the Bible. I was born at St. Thomas Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a hospital that's named after an apostle of none other than Jesus Christ. Why would someone have named a hospital after an apostle of Jesus Christ? Because it's in the Bible. I grew up in Smyrna, Tennessee. Smyrna, Tennessee is named after a church in Revelation, the second chapter. It was a successful church in the eyes of God. And so when the founders of the city of Smyrna began to name their place, they went back to the Bible. I grew up in a home with one man married to one woman in a committed relationship. You know why? Because they got that idea from the Bible that one man and one woman in a committed lifelong relationship is the ideal for families. In fact, Americans believe in that so much, we have enshrined it in law. My dad worked. He brought home a paycheck because he had inherited a Protestant work ethic that said, my job is not just a job, it is a vocation, and it is to be treated with seriousness. When I went to school, I went to school with whites. I went to school with blacks. I went to school with Hispanics because I had just started going to school after the civil rights movement in which Christian scriptures were used to reform the United States of America after years of injustice. It was in the Bible 
that we read things like, let righteousness roll down like a mighty river. When I bought my lunch, I used coins that had on every single one of them inscribed the phrase, in God we trust. Every coin still does. And oh, how we looked forward to Valentine's Day, a day named after a Christian minister. Easter, a time that celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How we looked forward to Christmas, a local state and still federal holiday celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. How we would dress up on Halloween, All Saints Evening, All Hallows Eve, a Christian celebration of all the people who had died in Christ in previous years and centuries. And we were able to do all of this because we lived in a nation that had a constitution that dated itself literally by the birth of Jesus Christ. I'm making this statement because I want us to understand that we actually do live in a nation that has been so tremendously influenced by the Christian faith. And you might have guessed why I would make this point. What happens when you cut the roots off of a flower? And the answer is, well, the flowers may, if you put them in water, they may still be attractive for another week or so, but they'll die. And what's going on in the United States of America today is that we are cutting the roots of our Christian faith from who we are as a people. When you do this, when you separate Jesus from the Christian principles that made us the nation that we are, then Christian principles will be turned in on themselves. They'll actually be misused and abused. So the women's rights movement, which started out as a great movement, has now turned into a pro-abortion movement. Once you cut Jesus out, it runs wild. It loses its focus. Our emphasis on free markets in the U.S. oftentimes has led to unimaginable greed and crime. Whenever you separate Jesus from a virtue, the virtue becomes a vice. Our rugged individualism in the U.S., something that in some senses has been the envy of the world, can oftentimes lead us as fathers and mothers to abandon our own children in pursuit of our own sexual fantasies, turning what could have been a great virtue grounded in the ethics of Jesus and instead into a great vice. I'm bringing all this up because I think it would be a fair question for you to ask Why are we doing this campaign that we're calling a New Day campaign? What problem are we trying to solve? So if we are a thousand points of light, actually in the U.S., probably something in the vicinity of 350,000 churches, about 3,500 churches are planted every year, about 3,500, maybe a little bit more go out of business every year. The problem with those numbers is that our population is going upward, which means that we're not keeping up with the growth. But I want us to address the question, what problem are we trying to solve? Last week, we had a a presentation from Steve Flatt, who's chairing the New Day campaign, a giving campaign. We announced that we're trying to raise $5 million, and that Giving Sunday is March the 13th. Some of that money will go to building a building for the West Campus, which is not only flourishing, but is booming right now. Some of that money will go to planting two or three churches here in the U.S. over the next five years or so. And a lot of that money will go to accelerate the church plants that we're doing where disciples are being made in the global south. If I were you, 
And I knew that I had a church asking me for $5 million. By the way, I just want to say, about half of the money's already in. About two and a half million's already been given. Now, let me say this. A lot of that came from our, our large donors, which means that to some extent from here out, it falls on people more like I, um, like I am. That is, people who have a good salary but maybe don't have a lot of wealth. And it's probably time for a lot of us who are in our 40s or 50s or maybe early 60s to say, okay, now it's my turn to step up. If I were you, and I had a church saying we need that much money, I would ask the question, what problem are you trying to solve? What, what problem are you trying to solve with that $5 million? Is there another way to solve the problem? Is the problem really real? Does the problem affect me? Is it something that I really ought to be worried about? So I've set this up, this long introduction, to suggest to you that this is a problem that is not only real, but it's a problem that's going to cost us and the people we love. And here to help us understand this is our next character in Hebrews chapter 11. We're dealing with the extraordinary heroes of Hebrews 11 as we walk through the uh, 11 weeks that started back in January, um, January 3rd. And we only have one verse today. It is the character Noah. So Hebrews 11 verse 7, let's read the text. Let's read the word of God. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that is keeping with the faith. So in this text, we learn our third hero, Noah, operated by faith, an ordinary man who became extraordinary through obedience to God's call to build that ark. I'm going to talk about the ark for just a minute. Actually, not going to spend much time on it. It's one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, so many of us could probably fill in the blanks on the story. Let me say the two things that often distract us from Noah's story, which are fine questions, but not of interest to me today, are first of all, questions about science and the flood. Most of our minds run there quickly. Was it a universal flood? Was the ark really the ark? Where is Mount Ararat? Have they discovered the ark? How did he really get two animals in and seven animals? Is all that like a myth or did it really happen and so forth? I'm not really interested in that question. And I'll tell you, the New Testament's not interested in that question either. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't be interested. That's not what we're paying attention to today. Now, the second thing that often distracts us is that, um, how do I say this without making you mothers mad at me? It's really not wallpaper for a nursery. Noah's Ark is not wallpaper for a nursery. Noah's Ark is actually God judging the world and massacring thousands of people for their sinfulness. That is, sometimes we think of Noah's Ark and, you know, the, the beautiful animals, like a little miniature zoo with rainbows and butterflies and whatnot. When you read the text of Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, where we actually get the story into chapter 9 even, uh, it's a really rough text. In fact, God is so hard on sinners in that text that God says, I don't think I'll ever do that again. I'm not going to do that again. I want to drop back and just get, uh, re get you reengaged with the story of Noah. It starts again with the text we referenced in the last lesson, Genesis chapter 6, where God looks down and he sees that humans have become so wicked that he's actually regretting that he ever made us. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become, that every inclination to the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, and the Lord regretted that he had made human beings. So, switching down to verse 7. 
So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret I have made them. So Noah's Ark is a story of great judgment. It is God saying to the world, I'm not okay with what you're doing to my good creation. And it's really important that we put Genesis 6 and this launch of the Noah's Ark story in context with Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1, when God creates the order, the birds, the fish, the animals, humans, and whatnot, each time he does it, he says, this is good. And only five chapters down the road, he says, it has now become so polluted, I don't even, I I regret that I even made this thing. And what polluted God's creation? We did. And so God has decided that he's going to have to destroy the creation. And just before he does, he notices that Noah has found favor in his eyes. And so the very next verse, this is the account of Noah and his family, a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked faithfully with his God. If you read the story of Noah, then you'll discover that Noah's story is a story of God rescuing a very few righteous people and in a lot of ways restarting the creative process. Just a word or two about the ark. The reason I want to mention the ark is, first of all, it's just a fascinating story. But more than that, I want you to appreciate what Noah must have gone through. I said maybe a week or two ago that it took Noah 100 years to build the ark. You know, I shouldn't have said that with such certitude because we actually don't know how long it took. One of the best guesses is that Noah started when he was 500 years old and ended when he was 600. That's where I got my figure, but it may not have been 100 years. What I can tell you is that the ark was almost 450 feet long, somewhere in the vicinity of 75 feet wide, and it was about four stories tall, which means that, and by the way, this is, this is used in the standard cubit, which is an ancient measurement. There's actually what's called a royal cubit, which is a little bit longer. If we use a royal cubit, Noah was probably building something just a little bit smaller than an aircraft carrier in his front yard. It defies all, all explanation. But I just want you to imagine for a moment living in a world very wicked where every inclination, every thought of humanity, every evil desire was being played out. And here you got one 500-year-old man in his front yard building an aircraft carrier. The reason I want you to envision that is because I want you to realize what Noah was willing to do in order to obey God. Like, it would be one thing for Noah to say, okay, I can put together some kind of a 25-foot jumbo, but an aircraft carrier in my front yard? And To suggest that he pulled it off in a hundred years, that may be wishful thinking. Could could a man and his sons build a ship, an aircraft carrier by hand in a hundred years? And then, of course, the floods began. Rains for 40 days. The waters continue to rise for almost half a year. Noah is on the ark with all the animals for something in the vicinity of just over a full year. Something you may not have noticed in the Hebrew text or something that's much easier to see in the Hebrew text, I should say, is that when the ark actually rises up and the water actually springs from the ground and drops from the heavens, in a lot of ways, God is releasing chaos on his creation. In some ways, if you, if you lived in the ancient Near East in what's called the Levant, this is true in Egypt, it's true up and down the coast, it's true in Israel, the ocean was a very scary thing for most people. The Egyptians, they sailed the Nile. 
But they didn't want to get out into the Mediterranean. That was scary, scary territory for them. The Phoenicians, eventually, they would sail the Mediterranean. But most Israelites, they were terrified of the water. Water was, even today, if you have water damage in your house, like that's the worst thing you can get is water damage, that or a fire. And so when God releases all this water, what he's actually doing is decreating the world because it has become so wicked. And only Noah, otherwise an ordinary man, rises up to become with his family extraordinary. So I'll mention this. We're aiming for building a building here on the west side of the county, planting two or three churches in the U.S., and then doubling down and making disciples all across the world. And it's a fair question. What problem are we trying to solve? And I'm going to answer that using Noah. Let's look at three texts from the New Testament that also comment on Noah. Here's the first one. Jesus says, as it, so Jesus is talking about his second coming. He's talking about the final day of judgment. And there is a day of judgment coming. I'm going to show you in just a moment. But Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of the Man. For in the days of Noah, before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. And this is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So I'm just going to answer the question, what problem are we trying to solve with a new day campaign? We're trying to solve the problem of millions of people facing a judge unprepared. That's the only reason we're doing this. By the way, I hope I don't sound defensive. I don't feel defensive. I don't feel like I'm being challenged on this. No one is saying, why are we doing this? Or no one's challenging it. But I just want to make sure that we go into this with certitude and with clarity. That we are trying to solve a problem of a day of judgment that is coming and millions, billions of people unprepared for it. I just want to remind you of this. I've, I've really, I've stressed over this sermon. This is the sermon I didn't want to preach. You get older and you want to be more pastoral. You want to be gentler. You know, when you get older, you want to sit back and just kind of have a legacy and not rile people up. And the last thing you want to do is get up and talk about hell. But guys, I want to make sure you get some clarity on this. I'm going to give you some clarity from the scriptures. Let me say this. There is a day of judgment coming. If you haven't thought about that in a while, you need to wake up and think about that. Jesus Christ is coming. The sky will be split. He will show up. He will come with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and this world will end and everybody will stand before the judgment seat of God. Everybody will be there. You will be there. Your family will be there. Your friends will be there. People all through history will be there. People from every nation, every island, every continent, we will all be there. The day is coming as sure as the sun rises. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. The way Peter puts it, when Jesus comes, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything that's in it will be laid bare. Everything will be destroyed. When Paul was preaching in Athens, as he got to the end of his sermon to these Athenians, some of whom appear to have been philosophers, he says this, God has set a day in which he will judge the world with justice by the men he has appointed. Jesus puts it this way in chapter 16 of the Gospel of Matthew. What good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? When the Son of Man comes, he will reward each person according to what they have 
done. Or he puts it this way in John the fifth chapter. He says, the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. I just want to stop and make sure that we get this principle. Every disciple made is a person who will rise up to life at the last day. And every disciple we fail to make is a person who will rise up to damnation. It's that simple. Your family members, your friends, your work colleagues, this community, this nation, this world, they are depending on the gospel because one day we're going to face a judge. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians. He says that God will punish those. That said first, it should have been 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 9. God will punish those who do not know God. He will punish those who do not obey the gospel. And he will punish them with an everlasting destruction. I just want to stop for a moment and say that for some of us, that's just not language we want to hear anymore. We're not used to hearing this kind of language, the language of death and destruction and hell. But I want to make sure you understand that God is a just God and every one of us has polluted his good creation. We've all lied to each other. We've all stolen from each other. We've mistreated each other. Look at our world. Almost inevitably, when you see someone committing one of these violent street crimes, you can almost put money in the bank. They don't have a father because they had a father who abandoned them as a child. That's what we've done to each other. We've taken advantage of each other. We've gone to war with each other. We've driven past people who were hungry, who had no food, who had no clothing, and we were okay because we had our big screen TVs. I want to make sure we understand God is a just God and he's not okay with that. And that's why he says over and over again, I'm going to put every single human in front of me and I'm going to judge every single human. Jesus puts it this way. He says, when I come in all my glory, I'm going to divide all of humanity into two camps. Do you remember the story, right? Sheep and the goats. To the goats, he says, depart from me, you who are. This is Jesus talking. Jesus curses half of humanity because they never responded to what he called us to do. And then this last text on it, Revelation 20. We're getting right at the end of the Bible. And John says, I saw a great white throne. I saw him seated on the throne. The dead, the great, the small, everybody standing in front of the throne. And the books were opened. And everybody was judged according to what was written in those books. And if your name was not found written in the book of life, you were thrown into a lake of fire. So why am I going through this? Because I want to answer your question. What problem are we trying to resolve? And the answer is, as in the days of Noah, when a flood came and recreated the earth by wiping out all the wickedness, there's a second day of judgment on its way. And we're trying to resolve that problem by winning everybody to Jesus. We want to give every single human on planet earth the chance to say yes to Jesus before he comes. Now, when I go through this list of scriptures, I want to make sure that those of you who follow Jesus understand You're exempt from the terror. Can I share just a couple more scriptures? So 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul talks about the coming of the Lord. He moves down in chapter 5 to say, you are not in darkness. So he's talking to Christians. He says, look, you Christians have nothing to fear from this. Not only do we have nothing to fear from this, but we haven't been appointed for God's wrath. Christians have not been appointed for God's wrath. On the day of judgment, when Jesus returns, it's going to be the best day of your life. Because through his blood, you have redemption. 
So when I go through all of that, I don't want you to walk away as a Christian and feel like, oh my goodness, what a heavy, heavy thought. Well, it's only heavy if you haven't said yes to Jesus. If you've said yes to Jesus, it's going to be the best day of your life. The day that you're raised from the dead, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through the blood of Jesus? All right, two more texts and we're going to wrap up. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter references Noah. And he says, it's a very complicated text, a text that's open to a lot of interpretation. I'm going to bypass all that to just suggest Peter's making the case that Jesus, upon his crucifixion, went to Hades. He went to the place where all the souls of the deceased are waiting for the day of judgment. Jesus went there and he proclaimed that he was victorious. And he did it to people who died during the flood. That's apparently what Peter is making reference to. And when he brings up Noah and the flood, he just goes on to say, and by the way, baptism is similar to Noah's ark. It saves us from damnation. Now, whatever else you want to do with all that, I want to bring it back to our original question, which is, what problem are we trying to resolve? And this is it. The only problem we're trying to resolve is lost people. And the only solution we have to offer is Jesus. I guess I have to say that one more time. I know I said it last week. I know I've said it quite a bit lately. But guys, don't take your eyes off the gospel. Disciple making is the ultimate mission. North Boulevard has a hundred ministries. We have a hundred ministries. I'm so proud of all of them. Don't back up on your ministries. I want you to keep doing it. We feed the poor. We do Christmas boxes. We've taken food all over the place. We, you guys know that you gave $83,000 for tornado victims just last week, in addition to 90-something thousand dollars of regular contribution. Keep doing all of it. It's the right thing to do. But remember, treating symptoms doesn't cure diseases. The disease of the world is lostness. And the only cure is the gospel. So while we treat diseases, uh, symptoms, as we should do, we should keep treating symptoms. But as we do, don't take your eye off the ball of making disciples. If we bring people to Jesus, the symptoms will eventually disappear. But if we don't bring people to Jesus, we will never stop treating symptoms because the disease will never go away. And so the problem we're trying to resolve is the problem of lost people who need salvation in Jesus. And then one other text. So now we go back to Peter again, but this time 2 Peter. And here, Peter's talking about the destruction, the end of time. And he says, look, God didn't spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on the ungodly people. He goes on to say, he's also going to punish this world, but he knows how to rescue us. But here's what I want you to see. He calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So as we talk about Noah, the genius of the Noah story, the ark, is that God holds people accountable for their actions. But he always raises a preacher to say, stop, come back, there's a better way. And that's why we're doing, that's, that's not just why we do the giving campaign, it's why we do everything we do. I happen to think, some of you do, some of you won't, that America's unraveling right now. Well, it happens. It happens to countries. I know there are a lot of people who are rejecting the Christian faith. I was just recently listening to a podcast of a pundit who's studied evangelicalism the last several years. He's talking about how evangelicals, that's Bible-believing Christianity in America. That's kind of a, what evangelicalism means. Don't think political so much as theological, but whatever. 
He made the statement that up until 1994, evangelicalism was a good thing in America. If you said you were an evangelical Christian, most people thought that was a good thing. He said somewhere between 1994 and about 2014, evangelicalism or Christianity became a neutral thing. It was like, you're a vegan, he's a Christian, he's a Buddhist, it's all the same. But in the last five, six, seven years, America's turned against Christianity. And now it's considered a bad thing in America to be a Christian. You know how I know that? You know how you know that? Go back to 2002 and imagine you're interviewing with an HR department at some big corporation in America and you happen to see a magazine over there that has a picture of Bruce Jenner on it, 2002. I want you to imagine for just a moment that you look at the HR person with whom you're interviewing and you said, Bruce Jenner is a woman. He's a woman. You know what the HR department would have said? Probably ought not hire this guy. He's lunatic. He's lost his mind. Look, it's Bruce Jenner. There's no way he's, it's Bruce Jenner. He's not a woman. That's 2002. Go into the same HR department today and look at a picture of Bruce Jenner and say Bruce Jenner is a man. Same HR department, same HR person. And you know what they'd say? Can't hire him because he's a bigot. He's full of hatred. We can't have a guy like that working here. That's how you know that the world's turning against the Christian faith. And you know what the solution to it is? Well, there are cultural solutions, educational solutions, political solutions. But you know what the final solution is? It's the gospel of Jesus. When we make disciples of all nations as Jesus teaches us to do, then people will let go of error and darkness and sin and all the stuff that clouds our minds and that destroys our families and that wounds our souls. And they'll find the peace and the joy that comes only through Jesus. So what do we do with that? You know, some years ago I watched this uh, I watched a play. Uh, I have to tell you that um, it's not, it was not a play that did a whole lot for me. I see that my, suddenly my PowerPoint is responding to me quickly here. The play is written by Samuel Beckett in the late 1940s. He wrote it in French and then it's translated into English. The name of the play, depends on who you're listening to, the name of the play is Waiting for God at Some Say. Others say Godot. I think in French you would say Godot. Waiting for Godot. It's, a real, it's, a, it's, it's the introduction to the theater of the absurd. So the whole play, which will last about two hours when it's unrightly, is just two guys and occasionally another character will come on who you know almost nothing about sitting under a tree that has no leaves on it and they're waiting for a guy named Godot. Now you never find out who these guys are. They're talking about all sorts of things, but you never figure out who the two guys are. You never figure out who Godot is. They, they never say who he is. They never say why they're waiting for him. They, have, they never say what's going to happen when he gets there. But over the course of the two hours, they get more and more depressed and more and more sure that Godot's not going to come. And they start talking about suicide. They're just going to kill themselves. And then suddenly the play ends. It ends and you never know who Godot was. You never know who these guys were. You never knew why they were waiting for him. You never knew what he was going to do when he got there. You just know, okay, Godot never came. It's actually a very depressing play. Beckett was asked a lot of times what, what the play meant and he never answered. He would never answer the question. 
Uh, he just wanted everybody to watch it and to come away and figure out whatever they thought. When I watched it, as I said sometime back, you know what I thought of? I thought of churches that have lost their mission. Someone showed me this picture. I don't mean to pick on this church, although I'm pretty sure there's no church left there. A building east of here in Tennessee, now empty. You guys, I've shared with you, we lose a church of Christ about every six days in America now. It goes out of business forever. That was before the pandemic. And I can't help but think that we now have thousands of churches here in the U.S. who are just waiting for Godot. They have no idea why they're there anymore. They have no mission. They don't know what to expect. They're not rallying around anything. It's just a matter of keeping the doors open until the last person dies. And I'm going to go back to my thousand points of light and ask you a question. Do you think it will have an impact on the lives of other people? When all these churches lose their capacity to proclaim the righteousness of God? Because it will. And that's why we decided, you know, whatever anyone else does, and there are a lot of good churches out there, we're going to be the church God has called us to be. We're going to respond to the fact that there's a day of judgment coming, that people really are lost. We're going to respond to the fact that only Jesus saves and that we have been called to preach the gospel to all nations. We're going to do it, God willing. And we're going to do it in such a way that we spend everything we have making sure the world gets to hear Jesus before he returns. And I pray that you're in on that vision personally in your life and congregationally with North Boulevard. So as we sing a song, that's what I want you to do. Ask yourself the question, am I all in on this? Let's sing the song, and let's talk to the Lord about it this week. Let's sing.